I'm Pamela Kirkland, a reporter and producer. The conversation around reparations can seem both overwhelming and contradictory. On one hand, it's hard to imagine how our country could ever fully atone for the centuries of injustice and atrocities committed against Black and Brown citizens. On the other hand, there's the belief that reparations are not only achievable, but essential to healing and moving forward. What we know is that reparations are owed to the descendants of the enslaved, and frankly, the bill is past due. As a Black woman in New Orleans in the 1960s, Dr. Cynthia Vernon thought her degree in mathematics would put her on the path to becoming a teacher. Opportunities for Black women to enter certain professions were limited. After graduating from Xavier University, she did become an educator, but not before playing a critical role in the Apollo space program and American history. Dr. Vernon's story remained untold until recently, when she shared her experiences of working at the NASA Data Center in Chrysler Space Division with her family. Lucky for us, her daughter Carla Vernon, CEO of The Honest Company and the first Afro-Latina to lead a publicly traded company in the U.S., helped arrange a conversation with Jaleka Lantigua, the series' creator and co-editor. Dr. Vernon overcame the challenges of growing up in the segregated South and broke barriers in science and education. Although she left an indelible mark on the nation's history, she reflects on her classmates who didn't have the same opportunities simply because of the time. In 1960, the jobs available to Black women were limited to roles such as educator and housewife. NASA mathematician was pretty much unthinkable. In this candid interview, Dr. Vernon discusses what those women are owed and the lasting impact she had on American history. I think in New Orleans, we sort of had a little, our own special little microcosm of a, a cultural group of people who we believed we were capable. We believed we deserve things. And even though the Jim Crow laws were there and you'd see signs like, you know, for colored only, for white only, and you couldn't go to theaters, there was a lot of things we could not do because of discrimination. But we never, we had positive outlooks. (laughs) We were just, as I said, that village that perpetuated positivity. Yeah. Do you recall one particular incident that had a special impact on you or one that you've carried with you? Okay. Um, I suppose I was about nine or ten. And every year we used to have to go to this program it was called a Founders Day program for this guy. His last, his name was McDonald, Nick McDonald, and the so there were a number of schools in New Orleans that were called uh, McDonald Number, whatever. This money that flowed to the schools came un- under the condition that annually 
he would be celebrated even though he was a slaveholder. As a, a young child, we had to go to this celebration and it always occurred in May. Well, May is very hot in New Orleans and we had to dress up and bring flowers, etc. And uh, the politicians and the leaders of this program would recognize children, but rarely did they ever recognize a black child. Um, that made an impact because I never understood why we were honoring this man, okay? Right. And I was young, and but something did, just did not seem right. Our schools were always inferior, uh, terrible books. I mean, hand me down everything. Okay, and and poor quality, poor quality in the school, and um, so it just reminded you of a white supremacy, which we you didn't want to be a part of. When did you know you were smart, and how did you know you were smart? <laughs> I knew I was smart. I guess when I got to about sixth grade. Mm, what happened? I I was the child uh, who always wanted to go to the board and put up the problems and explain <laughs> them to everyone. <laughs> I knew I was smart then. I knew I loved mathematics then. I knew I loved being able to explain it and, and help my my friends learn it. What a wonderful feeling yeah. for a child. And then it just continued on. Even as I got into high school, that's kind of where I excelled in, in the mathematics. And um, we ha I had some very good math teachers in high school and college. Tell me about this love of math. Why is math <laughs> one of your loves? I think it develops a way of thinking. There's always that that unit on logic and, and mathematics. Yes. <laughs> but it's always, you start here and you follow a, a, a path. You don't, you don't remember, you don't memorize formulas. You follow the path and you get to the, the answer and you get to the answer in such a way that you have an understanding of the answer. You go to Xavier, which is a Black Catholic institution. Tell me about coming on campus and being surrounded by smart Black kids like yourself. When I started out, I was one of the very few who started out on a mathematics path, of course. <laughs> 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 and of course, because of the times and at that point, all I could see myself, the possibility was getting a degree in education so that you to could be teach. a teacher. Yeah. And many of my friends took a path but became educators as well. Mm. Mm. I had um, some very good math professors, most of whom were some of the nuns, some who had, some of had PhDs, whatever. And, uh, and my and most of my science professors did have PhDs, you know. At the time, 
there was nothing like a school of engineering or anything of that nature. Your path was either you're going to be a biologist or if you're in the sciences, a chemist. Mm -hmm. There was a med tech program. And there was a pharmacy program at the school at the time. And so those were basically your options. So let's forward a little bit, because in 1963, you, for the first time, make history by becoming the first Black person at NASA's Chrysler Space Division in the data center in in Slidell, Mm -hmm. Louisiana. How did that come to happen? My math professor from the university, Sister Miriam Francis, mm. she, she would have me do special projects with her. When I graduated, she suggested that I apply at that point in time. NASA was looking for mathematicians, engineers. I was one of the few to graduate in the math program as a woman in our small class of mathematicians. And that's where I applied and was taken and was accepted right away. Tell me about day one working for NASA. Slidell is a town that's maybe about 40 miles north of New Orleans. So I had to find a place to live. Mm -hmm. I had another classmate who worked for NASA and he told me about this family who rented rooms, a black family, and I could rent a room from them. At that point, I didn't have a car. I think it was after maybe after a few paychecks, I decided to buy a car, okay. which I couldn't drive at the time. So I bought a, I bought a Volkswagen, <laughs> and it was a stick shift. <laughs> <laughs> the people I live with taught me how to drive a stick shift. Okay, and after a couple of minor accidents, <laughs> that's how I got back and forth. When I went to this big, beautiful plant. I mean, the computer facility was very, very nice. I went to work there under Chrysler Corporation. And at the time, that's how NASA worked. You know, there were various companies that had projects. I had no experience with, with computers, although computers were on site. We were not human computers like the ladies in Hidden Figures, because we already had the IBM computers at that point. I was hired as a computer assistant to uh, work with the engineers, but you had to put the correct run, stop cards, et cetera, in place, et cetera. So that's what I was hired to do. So you were basically translating the needs of the engineers so that the computer could make the necessary calculations. Yes. Okay. Okay. Use the manual, just like Dorothy Vaughn. Yeah. (laughs) In Hidden Figure. Sit down and read that manual and learn what you can about computers and how they work and 
and the system of <laughs> commands. Right. right. So how did you progress? How did you grow in this work? We had the plans and the, the development of the Saturn rockets that would boost the Apollo space rockets. However, my company was not going to get the contracts and there was going to be a, a lot of layoffs, all right? Okay. And at the time I had already contemplated, well, maybe I need to go back to school. I knew enough people, especially math educators, who had gone to school to um, further their education. Science Foundation grants were available for us to go to school easily. But you had to become an educator. So I made up my mind that, okay, I'll go to the classroom to apply for the the grant. And I got the grant. And I studied more (laughs) mathematics. (laughs) And I studied mathematics along with some people who were engineers at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, some classes I pretty did pretty well in. <laughs> At the same time, I was I got married, and my husband and I both went to study at the University of Oklahoma. He too was a mathematician. We met in classes together. Beautiful. I taught in schools there in Oklahoma mm-hmm. while my husband finished some of his work, and then he got a job in Buffalo, New York. Okay. And so we we moved to Buffalo, New York, and we had our family in Buffalo, New York. And he was a professor, and he continued his education. And uh, I was homemaker for a while. And then um, after that, oh, he decided to go full-time for his PhD. Then I decided I'd finish and get my PhD degree. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I decided I'd do something different. I'd get it in microbiology. (laughs) What? What? Why microbiology? The opportunities to, to do anything but teach math I see. We're not available. Okay. The self-determination in you is not happy with the options. Yeah. Okay. So you get this degree in microbiology with the intent to do what with it? There was a professor who was the head of blood banking. Mm. And he met me and he decided that he'd offer me an opportunity to do some research at the blood bank while getting my degree. And he would cover the cost of my degree and give me a monthly stipend. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Your PhD. So I finished my degree, but I also had opportunities from the university to work with STEM programs with the children because I had been an educator. Right. I was working with, with teenagers mm-hmm. who were developing what they wanted to do, okay? After I got my degree, uh, 
I continued to work in a program with the University of Buffalo with some STEM programs, as they call them today. At the same time, I did part-time research. So right. sometimes you, you make decisions based on... On the economics of it, of course. Family needs and, and, and benefits, et cetera. 1959 to basically 1978, 79 were probably the most important years for NASA in terms of establishing it as the phenomenon and the authority that it is. Tell me about the culture of working there as a brilliant Black woman who is a go-getter and ambitious and sure of herself. As far as the culture, it was still the Southern culture. I mean, it was still the 60s and when you were at work, people would give you what you needed to do, but there was never any any special attention. Here's your project. Here's the manual. There was no formal training. I had a female supervisor. Okay. She was the supervisor of our office, and she gave us the projects, and she just directed us to to, to read the manual and figure out things that we needed to figure out. and Let's talk a little bit about the machine itself, right? Because the way that IBM is portrayed in the film, it's very imposing. It's very daunting for even the quote-unquote men to figure this thing out. Yeah. How did you bring to bear your math skills? My... Math came into play with working with the engineers and talking to them to make sure that they could get their run the right way. Thinking about broadly, not just the contributions that you've made, but also the opportunities that you've had. And from the way you tell the story, you had mentors and teachers and other people who recognized, oh, here's a really smart young woman. Let's support her. Let's create opportunities for her. But there are tens of millions of people who didn't have such a similar path. And that is very much due to the Jim Crow and to the institutionalized racial separation of the United States. We're now coming into a conversation in the country about what might be owed and to whom it might be owed. So I'm going to put it very simply to you. As a Black woman growing up in segregated New Orleans, do you feel you are owed anything? Whoa. I think what is owed should be paid forward. It should be paid for opportunities for the young Black scientists and young Black, whatever their profession is. I think, I think that's, that's, that's what should be happened to, as far as I see. I think it should be paid forward to the generations as they move along. Opportunities in helping people to develop as they should in their fields of interest with, with goals and, and plans and mentors and everything and, and, and the finances as I was so fortunate during my time of having 
having the the finances furnished to, uh, available to me mm-hmm. by the different group. If someone proposed, for example, that as a way to repair and repay, that today and going forward, for example, school university systems would be free of charge for the Black descendants of the formerly enslaved. That's only a part of a solution. Because even if tuition is free, there are many other things that go into being a student and reaching your goals and profession that that would not be included as just saying, okay, all schools are free for enslaved people. It's going to take a lot more thought on my part because I have not thought, you know, I have not considered that. But I think there's just so much more that goes into it uh, Hmm. than just free tuition. Okay. So let me ask you a question about your contemporaries. The women who, for lack of other pathways, professional pathways, went into education but could have been... Engineers could have been designers, could have been a whole range of things. Do you think that they are owed anything for having been somewhat derailed? I think we are all owed something. But as I said earlier, I don't. Whatever your profession is, it's going to have to be paid forward. It's going to be have to. Be, up to date from this day forward okay. to the people who want to be designers, engineers. And paying that tuition is one thing, but also, as I said, um, people have to live, people have families. Um, there's got to be a way like there was for me. Mm. Mm. So for you, this is about creating pathways to opportunity. Yeah. Okay, well, Dr. Vernon, it has been an absolute honor to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Okay. Special thanks to Dr. Cynthia Vernon for sharing her incredible story with us. While her journey as a trailblazer for Black women in STEM during the civil rights era is a remarkable one, It's also a reminder of the barriers that aspiring scientists and mathematicians from marginalized groups faced and begs the question of how many descendants of the enslaved didn't have the same success because of those barriers. Limited access to quality education, mentorship, resources, and professional networks made it nearly impossible to achieve the same levels of success as Dr. Vernon. Even today, Black women still make up a small percentage of the STEM workforce. According to a 2017 National Science Foundation report, Black women made up less than 3% of scientists and engineers in the country. Dr. Vernon's accomplishments are even more remarkable when you think about how few have made it to the same ranks she has, even 60 years later. This podcast is meant to be enjoyed in an order that makes the most sense for our listeners. Choose your reparations journey and keep the conversation going. 
For more information, all episodes, and transcripts, visit stillpayingthepricepod.com. This is an open source podcast. We encourage you to use our episodes and supporting materials in your classrooms, organizations, and anywhere they can make an impact. You may rebroadcast parts of or entire episodes of without permission. Just please drop us a line so we can keep track. Still Paying the Price is made possible by a grant from the MacArthur Foundation and is an original production of LWC Studios. Jaleka Lantigua is the show's creator and executive producer. I'm Pamela Kirkland, the series co-editor. Kojin Tashiro is the sound designer, and Judy Bell Kamungyan mixed this episode. Paulina Velasco is our managing editor. Michelle Baker is our associate producer. Amanda De Jesus is our production intern. Lindsay Hood is our fact checker. Thank you for listening.